Welcome to Spilling the Tea with UHPP, where TEA stands for truth, education, and advice surrounding sexual health. Get your cups and cozies ready because the tea is what? H-O-T hot. Okay, so hello everybody listening, watching, but in spirit because this is a podcast. This is Ohio here with Sarah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sarah. And also here with our special guest, Tyler. Thanks for being with us today. Anything you want to say? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, you know, good afternoon. My name's Tyler Vasquez. Uh pronouns they he. Um, so how are how are y'all doing? Doing good, doing good, working, living, all the things. What about you, Sarah? Yeah, I'm doing well. Um Feeling cozy, feeling toasty where I am. Uh, got my cat here. I'm hydrated. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. So thanks for having me here. And also, Tyler, thanks for being here. Um, let's get this party started. All right. How are you doing, Tyler? I'm doing really good. Thank you. Um, I had some auditions for my school show um, kind of within this week, as well as like callbacks. And then there's this podcast, of course, so I'm excited for that. So I have a few things going on that um, have been going pretty well. Um, so yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Thank you. Okay, that's good to hear. I want a ticket when, you know, everything gets all said and done, let me know. <laughs> so from here, do you want to tell us about your position at Planned Parenthood and the work that you do here? Yes. So um, I am a youth health promoter at Upper Hudson Planned Parenthood. Essentially, um, I get paid to learn. And that's like (laughs) the coolest thing in the world. Um, We do a lot. We do lots of different projects. We do lots of different um, sexual health like webinars. Um, We basically learn about many different aspects of of sex ed, sex education, deeper than maybe you would learn in like a health classroom. Um, and especially something that is, uh, especially in a way that is able to not only be understood by um, teens like myself, but also in a way that can help us educate other folks when the time comes, if we choose to be sex educators myself, uh, ourselves, excuse me. Um, so we'll, again, we'll do webinars, we'll do projects, uh, or we'll do podcasts like this. Um, so it's just really cool to be able to learn about sexual health education, um, to learn about barrier, um, to learn about barriers and equity and inequities, and also learning about how to combat that, and learning about it from an intersectional lens um, surrounding, you know, race, gender, economic status, etc., all within the uh, guise of sex education. So it's a really cool position, and I get to work with some really cool uh, teenagers throughout the capital region as well. So that's fun. Yeah, yeah. it's really awesome. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, it's really awesome to have um, you on the team, Tyler, and our other youth health promoters um, doing projects around the affiliate and the clinic and spreading the word on sexual health. And, um, you know, you mentioned that you're doing a great deal of learning, but y'all also teach us so much as well, right? Um, And that's why we have you on the podcast to spread the word. So um, why don't you tell us, what are you going to discuss today? Yeah, so in honor of um, World AIDS Day, which is uh, every December 1st, um, we decided to record this podcast just to talk about HIV AIDS, people living with HIV and AIDS, and basically um, kind of a general synopsis of maybe treatment methods or uh, inequities, as well as maybe the history behind it and maybe a little bit of science here and there. Can't talk much about that because I'm not a scientist myself, but I could do the best I can. <laughs> so, um, yes. but yes, um, but first we're going to start off by playing a game of fact or crap. Uh, so we can kind of start from there. And if the audience wants to maybe play along and uh, you know, kind of guess their questions or guess their answers, they can do that too. So, okay, that sounds good, and I'm ready to play. Factor Crap is one of my favorite games, so we could jump right in. For everybody listening, let's start off with this first question and see how y'all do. We will give you a pause, try to guess the answer before you tell you whether or not it is a fact or whether or not it is indeed crap. So get ready. Question number one is, 
HIV can be spread through saliva or sweat. Is that a factual statement or a crapsual statement? <laughs> mm. To drink it in. Seconds passing. Do, 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 do. Okay, you've had enough time. The answer. <laughs> the answer is crap. That is not true. Tyler, do you want to let us know what the specific fluids are that HIV can be passed through? Yeah, so it can be passed through, um, according to Dr. Nia Pathak on WebMD, she says that it can be passed through vaginal fluids, uh, semen, um, blood in some cases, uh, various different fluids like that, uh, especially like uh, especially near like sexual organs, things like that, but it's not able to really spread through saliva or sweat, tears, urine, et cetera. So if you have a partner or if you know someone living with HIV, kissing, using gym equipment, hugging, et cetera, is not going to spread the virus by any means. Okay, so to recap, bodily fluids like blood, vaginal secretions, semen, mm, what about, anything having to do with the anus um so it can so th there can, uh there are certain anal fluids as far as i know um that can uh lead to hiv contraction if feel free to correct me um because y'all would know more than i would but um i wasn't i didn't gather any information on that so i do apologize no no that's completely right um I just wanted to clarify. Yeah, so definitely rectal fluids. And then also, um, I feel like I heard breast milk as well. What about, what do you think about that on my Yep. So then I was going to come in and recap, be like, yeah. So we got <laughs> six fluids uh, to remember, to help people remember, like, is there a number? What is that number? And it is six, and you can fill it in. Um, in your head, when you go forward, it's semen, pre-cum or pre-ejaculatory fluid, which is like the longer word. There's vaginal secretions, breast milk blood um and oh i said it the six did i say and anal fluids there's number six so again that's pre-com or pre-ejaculatory fluid semen vaginal secretions blood breast milk and anal fluids can all spread hiv and when you're thinking about like those different fluids that hiv can be transmitted through it kind of lends the idea to what activities might be hiv might be spread through whether that's unprotected sex vaginal, anal or oral right or whether that's from parent to child either some cases through pregnancy though it's not as common anymore uh, because there are medications for hiv positive pregnant people to make sure that they do not pass hiv to a developing fetus so that's great um or through birth if someone um, for some reason does not know that they are hiv positive and they're giving birth it could be spread that way from parent to child right or through breast milk if someone's HIV positive and they don't know and they're not on medication to help make sure they're not transmitting it, it can be present in breast milk and can be passed to a child that way. So those are um, some of the behaviors. Also, we're thinking about blood. We're also thinking about needles, right? Sharing needles between people, whether that's for drugs or whether that's for medicine, right? Mm -hmm. Needles could be one of the ways that bloods could be shared between people. And if someone is positive, of course, they can pass it that way. So thinking about those fluids, those six fluids, and think about what activities those fluids are actually being shared between people when it comes to HIV transmission. Hmm. Yes, thank you so much, Amaya, um, for, for the addendum. I really do appreciate it. Um, so I'll go next with the second question. So. Question number two is HIV can spread through mosquitoes or mosquito bites. Wait. Okay. So according to um, Dr. Neha Pathak, who um, I also cited in the first question, um, this is actually crap. And this is was surprising to me when I was doing my um, doing research for this. Um, there are numerous studies that actually disprove this statement that HIV can spread through mosquito bites and mosquitoes. Um, that's that was something that I maybe had a preconceived notion of, of, yeah, of course it could spread because it's spread through blood contact. But according to at least most scientific studies um, that are that still stand today, there's no true evidence to actually back that up. So I was definitely surprised by that. Yeah, this is a question I have 100% had in class. So I'm really great to hear it on the podcast today. Thanks, thanks for bringing that up, Tyler. 
Yeah, and it's definitely understandable why someone might think that because there's other there's other diseases that can be spread through mosquito contact, like for example, malaria, right? So it's definitely understandable why someone might think that it could also be spread that way. But it is interesting to know the the different nature of different uh, viruses and different like viral conditions or diseases and how they interact like with our environment. That's interesting, interesting, interesting. Okay. Alrighty. Let's continue on with our question number three. Factor crap. There is a medication available for people who are at high risk of contracting HIV to prevent infection. Is it fact? Is it crap? Begins. And the answer is fact. Right, so this <laughs> is true. Um, a lovely little acronym, PrEP, some of us may know it as pre-exposure prophylaxis, is a medication that people can use um, to help uh, contain, to help um, suppress the spread of HIV within the body. Um, and there's also PEP, post-exposure prophylaxis, so one that can be used after an experience. Um, and then PrEP, of course, which can be used before an experience. Yes, yes, yes. Not enough people know about PEP and PrEP, um, but there's more information and education going on right now. So luckily more people who need it and want to use it are gonna be able to have access to it because they know it's there to use. Okay, so next question is going to be, or next statement is going to be, factor crap. HIV may take years to develop into a acquired immune deficiency syndrome or AIDS in a patient. Fact or crap? Fact or crap? Time given. Do you little thinking? What are y'all gonna say for the answer? Okay, that's enough time. So the answer is fact. So yes, although HIV can be detected within weeks of exposure, specifically, uh, I'm not gonna say the number because it can vary. Okay, yes, it can take um, it can take a few weeks for HIV to be detected in the body through different tests, right? But it can take eight to ten years for opportunistic infections such as Kaposi sarcoma to develop, according to WebMD. Okay, and then I'll also add. Um, to that, to be spliced in, that it can take years and years and years and years and years for it AIDS to develop. And also reminding people that just because someone is infected with HIV, it does not mean that they will develop AIDS. AIDS mm -hmm. is a condition that can be caused by the virus HIV, right? So if someone is taking their medication or if someone is making sure that they're staying healthy, they do not have to develop AIDS. It's just something that can happen as a progression of having the disease over time. Right. Yeah. HIV can link to AIDS, uh, but people will not get AIDS first without first having an experience with HIV. And yeah, I was surprised when I found out um, that as well, kind of like the time gap, right? Um, one of the numbers I had seen, it takes about, it can take about 11 years for symptoms to even show um, once somebody has, um, has, 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 has HIV, right? And throughout that time, you can still, um, you know, unknowingly um, transmit it to others, um, which is quite, quite alarming. Yeah, and the symptoms of HIV, since HIV really has to do with the immune system, HIV stands for human immunodeficiency virus. Um, and then again, state AIDS stands for acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. It has that immune in there. So it has to do with the immune system and how it's able to fight off infections and things like that and weakening the immune system so you're not as able to fight off infections that you otherwise would be able to, right? So when someone is starting to show symptoms of HIV, if they have an HIV infection, if at all they start showing symptoms, right, it might look like something else, like a cold or, you know, like a flu. And so that's why it's so important to have people be getting tested often periodically if they are sexually active or might be at risk for contracting HIV because there's really no way to know for sure unless you have a test. So keeping that in mind, everybody. Yeah, a thousand percent. Awesome. Thanks, Amaya. 
And so for our last question, our last factor crap, what do we think? People living with HIV or AIDS uh, nowadays have to take a dozen pills or so in order to stay healthy. Factor crap. <laughs> I love that. Um, and this is crap, right? So definitely the way we um, approach HIV and AIDS, um, you know, in terms of uh, what we think about it and also treatment has for sure changed. Um, people living with HIV or AIDS only really need to take about one to four pills daily um, and should be advised by their healthcare provider about which ones to take. You may have heard of antiretroviral therapy or ART as um, a regimen of medication people can take uh, to help fight off infections in patients with HIV. And, and those medications, um, for anybody wondering uh, what the brands are, Viriad and Retrovir, um, are some pills that can be taken. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Now, moving right on along, that was our little factor crap game. So how well did you do? How much did you know? Was it more than you thought? Was it less than you thought? And you need to just do a little more research, a little more learning? Who knows? But hopefully you had a good time learning with us and playing that game. So that being all said and done, let's talk a little bit more about HIV and AIDS and the history surrounding it. Tyler, do you want to take it away and let us know about some of that history, particularly in the United States, but also worldwide? Yes, thank you. So um, what's interesting, this is actually something that I learned um, with doing research for this. Um, pre-1980, pre-1981, uh, there were actually some cases, uh, or there are uh, people, uh, scientists believe that there were uh, potential cases of people living with HIV and, a and or AIDS um, in the 1960s and 70s, especially in the um, Democratic Republic of the Congo in Africa, um, particularly in Kinshasa, the capital, I believe. Um, and so some, and so many scientists believe that that, that the HIV virus kind of mutated from there and was able to spread throughout uh, worldwide. And that by the time 1980 rolled around, before we even had an actual scientific consensus of HIV or AIDS, um, 100,000 to 300,000 people could have already been infected. Um, th there's research to back this up, and I thought it was very interesting, um, especially since at that point there would have been no treatment or cure or possibly not even a diagnosis because there would have been no true knowledge of what was going on in the body. Um, but then as most people understand HIV and AIDS in the United States and especially worldwide, we typically start with the 1980s. So we start with around 19, late 1981, 1982. Um, cases of a rare lung infection uh, called PCP was found in five young, uh, previously healthy gay males um, living in Los Angeles. And so Los Angeles, San Francisco, cities like that, especially in California, were kind of hotspots for HIV um, infection uh, in the 1980s. And so doctors didn't really know what to do with this. They were kind of uh, confused. They were like, well, what's going on? Um, and so by December 1981, there were not only cases of PCP in uh in gay men, but also with people who inject drugs. And so people thought that there was some kind of link to that. And by the end of 1981, there were about 270 reported cases of uh, severe immune deficiency among gay men, particularly in California. And over 120 of them had already been, uh, had already passed. So um, by 1982, uh, many groups of gay men in Southern California kind of were curious about what was going on and they were assuming that this uh, immune deficiency was caused by something sexual especially since the majority of people were either uh, using were either injecting themselves with drugs or they were um, or they were hom uh, homosexual or bisexual or um, uh, men particularly so it, um, then you have, uh, towards like the early to mid 1980s, you have doctors diagnosing patients with what they would call gay cancer because they didn't really have much of a no uh, much knowledge of it. If any of you have ever watched uh, uh, Falsettos, the musical, they actually talk about this a lot um, and kind of like the effect it had on like 1980s uh, uh, 
uh, gay communities and how they called it gay cancer because they didn't have a true uh, knowledge of the um, of kind of the the effects of, of this virus and they didn't really understand how it spread or what was going on. And so as the 80s and 90s rolled around, people started you know, getting fearful. People were like, oh, well, this is spread by gay people and only gay people can get it. But then as around 1983, I believe, uh, the first cases of heterosexual couples um, contracting HIV were found. And so they found it in many, um, in many women living in heterosexual relationships. And they were like, well, this is weird because we thought it was only something that gay people can get. Now we understand that that's just not the case. Um, so that kind of spread throughout the 1980s. There were many people such as, I believe his name was Ryan White, correct me if I'm wrong, um, that was uh, kind of banned from going to school because he contracted HIV. Uh, I don't believe it was from sexual contact actually, but they kind of banned him and you know, he died in the 90s, unfortunately, because people did not have a knowledge of what was going on in the body and also in uh, queer communities, but also communities throughout the world and people in stick, you know, this virus and uh, the um, syndrome that comes along with it with AIDS, if it, uh, if it's prolonged, people didn't have a true understanding of it and therefore were very fearful and were very hateful towards the people who maybe have contracted this virus or have acquired this um, specific syndrome. So as we move towards like the 2000s and 2010s and, 2000, and now 2021, we have a much greater understanding. We know about, we have antiretroviral therapies as we talked before. Um, we have medications to not only slow down the progression of the virus and ultimately help people live longer. We also have information about uh, HIV and AIDS prevention. And um, although there's not really much, we don't really have a cure now, there's potential uh, evidence that we may, you know, in the next 10 to 20 years have a vaccine um, for HIV and AIDS. They, I remember they were doing uh, early trials on it uh, earlier this year. So I thought that was really nice. But um, yeah, it's just kind of this entire shift over the last 30 to 40 years of our understanding of this virus, um, I think has been phenomenal. And I think, and we have to obviously thank not only the doctors and the scientists that only, that kind of worked around this and studied this, but also queer communities, trans communities, et cetera, that fought for not only equity, but also understanding from their societal peers. So I thought that was nice. Yes. Wow, Tyler, thank you so much for breaking that down for us in such a concise manner. <laughs> I think you did a really great job spanning Oh gosh, however many years you did. Um, and I think it's so interesting too, right? Like what a wild ride to be living when, um, you know, this virus is making itself known and trying to like connect the dots. And um, you had mentioned a lot of stigma um, surrounding HIV, you know, in the 80s and the 90s. And even still that is perpetuated today, which is such an important um, reason as to why, you know, we're having this podcast and we can have you on and we can talk about HIV and what it is and all those different aspects. Um, so thank you again for that. And um, if we can continue on the history front, right, because this episode is in honor of World AIDS Day, which is, what day is that, Tyler? World AIDS Day. What's that the is date? December. So that's December 1st annually. Um, so, so that began... Um, in the 19, so that began in the 1980s. Um, World AIDS Day is kind of the celebration of anyone living with HIV, anyone who has unfortunately passed. As we know, about 35 million people have passed. It was founded in 1988, and it was actually the first ever Global Health Day. Um, and I thought that was really cool. Um, so, you know, there's celebrations throughout the UK, there's been celebrations throughout the United States, all around the world. Uh, really, people have came together to kind of um, make sure to stand up for people living with HIV and maybe even advocate for themselves. And I think through, especially throughout the late 80s and the early 90s, as people started to gain a slight understanding of what this virus or this syndrome entailed, um, people, uh, it began to get, it, it began, it be, the event began to pro pro proliferate, excuse me, um, and more people started showing up for, you know, marches and um, 
certain events such as people making like AIDS quilts, things like that. Um, just many different things that people could do to show up for folks, um, to raise money, especially like mutual aid, a lot of stuff like that, especially fundraising for, um, for schools and colleges to have an understanding of HIV and AIDS and making sure they have prevention, uh, preventive, preventative me measures on their campuses. Um, there's stuff like that they do nowadays. I think that's really cool as well. Um, so they do lots of different events and they've been doing that since about the 80s and have kind of started to evolve into a more of a modern audience with social media, um, working again in universities and in workplaces to kind of combat the virus and also making sure we, uh, we don't have as much of the stigma that surrounded it 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. Thanks so much, Tyler. To be honest with you, I did not know that uh, World AIDS Day went back that to the to the 80s. I had no idea. Um, and when I think back to like my education about HIV in school, um, you know, lots going on in school, so I can't pay attention to everything. So I'm not really sure if it was covered or how it was covered. But I know for sure that I didn't know about World AIDS Day until recently, which says a lot because there's there's been a lot of times I've been at a school, right? Um, and that can be you know, a result of many different factors. Um, so that's that's really wild. Uh, we have a beautiful, we have beautiful events that happen here in Albany, um, just as you were saying with the quilts and, um, you know, just stories and recognition and whatnot. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a pretty wonderful event. So thanks for talking to us about it. Okay, so from here, Tyler, can you let us know some of the statistics? Statistics by itself is a tongue twister. If anyone can say statistics five times fast and their tongue just doesn't fly out of their like their head, then <laughs> you have a special skill. Statistics. Statistics. So, Tyler, can you let us know some of the stats? Yeah. On <laughs> HIV and AIDS um, in the States where we are, but also internationally. Yeah, so um, so according to HIV.gov, there's approximately 1.2 million people in the United States that um, have HIV, that are living with either HIV or AIDS currently. Um, AIDS, uh, living with AIDS is obviously a much more rare occurrence nowadays because we have uh, many medications to kind of prevent that from onsetting. Um, so but however with hiv infections in 2019 an estimated 34,800 new hiv infections occurred in the united states um and so again with not with actual knowledge with preventative measures and understanding like hey barrier methods like um external and internal condoms or uh it, well mostly that because um, there's not a lot of lot of other methods that kind of prevent HIV um, with, with sexual contact with that prevent HIV contraction with sexual contact. Excuse me. Um, but uh, now that we have a much greater knowledge of what the virus is and how it spreads, um, we've been able to contain a lot of the new infections. There hasn't been nearly as many as there were back in the 80s and 90s. So again, 34. So about 35,000 um, in 2019. So they've so new HIV uh, infections declined about eight percent from thirty from thirty seven thousand eight hundred in twenty fifteen to again um, just under thirty five thousand in twenty nineteen. So this is after a long period of fighting for HIV and AIDS uh, equity, especially from queer and trans folks as well as from scientists, being able to make sure people have proper medications, things like that. Um, in 2019, 30, uh, about 36,000 people received an HIV diagnosis in the US um, and a couple other areas such as Puerto Rico and Guam all, all kind of added together, uh, which is an overall 9% decrease compared with 2015. So I think that's really good too. Um, so not only are we having, are we, uh, does the, um, does HIV gov kind of state like, hey, we have less cases, we also have less cases diagnosed. So people are clearly um, starting to understand, hey, how do we make sure that we're keeping each other safe, you know, things like that. Um, the only, a, a big thing though, that I thought was um, something that needs to really be touched about, a couple things, but the first thing, about 13% of people in the U US, um, according to this website, kind of states that 
people don't know and don't know that they actually are living with HIV. So if you're 13% of 1.2 million people, I can't do that off the top of my head, but it's definitely probably about 100,000 or more. Uh, that's a lot of people that are living with HIV and could easily, or maybe not easily, but could access medication um, that could effectively help treat it, but are not aware of the fact that they are living with it. Um, and so obviously HIV, as we talk about statistics and as we talk about medical medical inequities, a disproportionate impact of um, HIV AIDS, uh, people living with HIV and AIDS uh, impacts various different populations, but especially uh, black folks, Hispanic folks, um, uh, people of color, um, ethnic minorities, uh, queer and trans folks, such as uh, tra transgender women, uh, queer men, things like things of that nature, they, they have very dispropor disproportionate statistics. Um, the CDC, they've stated that um, out of the about 38,000 new HIV diagnoses in 2018, 26% were among Black or African-American gay and bisexual men. So I thought that was something else that really needed to be touched on. Um, in terms of New York State, um, it is a little bit different. In Let me see if I can pull this up. Let me see if I can find it just a second. Um, so the number of persons that were newly diagnosed in New York State, it's decreased about 45% from 20, 2009 to 2019. So that's about 4,300 people to 2,300 people um, that kind of decrease. So it's decreased quite a bit in, term, in New York State. So I think that's really good. And I although I wasn't able to gather a statistic on this, um, I wouldn't be surprised if in the Albany area that might be a little bit lower and in areas such as maybe New York City, it might be a little bit higher. But again, um, I don't have the proper statistic on that. Um, so statewide, 20% of persons newly diagnosed with HIV were concurrently diagnosed with AIDS. So this isn't something that is a common occurrence, again, 20%, but it is still something that needs to be touched upon. And if you can get that HIV uh, diagnosis early on, it is going to easily prevent the onset of uh, the AIDS syndrome. Um, so again, there are this, you know, there's, uh, disproportionalities between different races, especially in New York State. Um, Non-Hispanic non Black and Hispanic individuals were 9.7 and 6.3 times higher, respectively, um, in, I, I believe it's 2009, to uh, receive HIV AIDS, to receive HIV AIDS diagnoses. So I think that was another big thing too. So it's kind of a nationwide um, disproportionality that I think needs to definitely be addressed. Wow. <laughs> Thank you, Tyler. Um, you mentioned uh, you mentioned before their um, information on disparity um, and what and so if we can kind of explore that a little further, because um, we know that there are definitely challenges and barriers to care um, to take into consideration. So would you mind expanding on maybe some of the medical barriers or the systemic inequities that people may experience when it comes to um, HIV? Of course. So um, one major thing that I thought was interesting. Uh, so the Human Rights Campaign, I think, is another really great resource, especially for LGBTQ folks um, of any walk of life, but especially um, facing discrimination, things of that nature. Um, they have a resource page and one of their pages is on transgender people and HIV. And this is what we know. So obviously we don't have as much information, we don't have as much information um, like from the CDC or even from the human rights campaign as maybe we should, because unfortunately a lot of people are not um, out, you know, and are able to say safely like, hey, I'm transgender and I'm living with HIV or I'm queer and I'm living with HIV, et cetera. So, but, as far as um, kind of the fast facts go, according to this page, worldwide, about 19.1% of transgender women are living with HIV, while in the US, that number goes up to 21.6%. Um, so they've also stated that in one in three trans people in Washington, DC, that they personally surveyed are living with HIV. Um, and that 19% of the trans people that they surveyed um, in this uh, in this experience, well, in this study, excuse me, um, 
19% of those trans people surveyed that they have been refused medical care because of their gender identity. So obviously, um, when we talk about uh, discrimination and when we talk about disproportionality, uh, transgender women, non-binary people, trans transgender men, et cetera, are all going to be facing many uh, social and also medical inequities uh, and may not and may not have medical providers that have an understanding of their gender identity that is affirming to them in order to also make sure that they are effectively taking care of them. So you may have a doctor that knows you know how to treat HIV, but this doctor may also be misgendering you and is not calling and is not using your pronouns, not calling you by your name, um, and is or, or you know you may not be able to afford a healthcare provider, you know things of that nature. That is something that, according to this study, many transgender people live with. Um, another thing that I also touched upon earlier a little bit were especially black uh, queer men, black bisexual men, black gay men, etc. Um, so about three out of four Black or African-American gay and bisexual men in the United States who received an HIV diagnosis were between the ages of 13 to 34. So obviously this is a much younger demographic of folks that are getting diagnosed with HIV than maybe um, than a lot of people may think. Um, but according to the CDC, that is the case. So we you see that younger and younger ages, people are being diagnosed with HIV and are unfortunately not, are, are, are unfortunately not receiving the care that maybe they need or deserve. Um, so I think that's something to discuss also. So also the National Transgender Discrimination Survey, they reported, especially transgender people of color, report exponentially higher rates of HIV. Um, maybe as high as 24.9% for um, African-American transgender people um, compared to 2.4% of all Black or African-American people in the U.S. Um, or as high as 10.9% for transgender Latinx people compared to 0.6% for the general U.S. population of Latinx folks. So it's definitely a disproportionality, especially within the queer and trans communities. Um, and as we found with the Human Rights Campaign and the National Transgender Discrimination Survey, it's, it's especially evident for um, trans folks living with HIV um, and also the inequities they face there. So. Okay, thank you, uh, Tyler, for bringing up all that really important information. It's also um, especially really good to talk about the, the barriers to care that people with different identities have to face that maybe other people don't, especially when we're talking about um, racism or transphobia or homophobia within the medical industry. A lot of people just forget or they don't really consider that if you're seeking care, it's just about the quality of the care that you're getting. That's one matter, but you could be getting the best care, but still be dealing with a homophobic, transphobic or anti-Black doctor, et cetera, et cetera. And that's gonna affect how, how you're gonna be able to receive that care, the um, the the quality of that care or the ability for you to be able to do and get all the things that you need to do and get when it comes to your health. So thank you for bringing that up. That's going to be a whole other episode and it's on its way. And if you want to <laughs> be on too, just let us know you have a seat. <laughs> um, so <laughs> coming from there, I am so serious. You have a seat on the board. Um, so going from there, um, could you let us know and talk to us some more about treatments or the science behind the virus and everything like that? <laughs> yeah, so I'm not going to go too thorough about this because obviously I'm no doctor, I'm no scientist, I do yeah. not have a PhD. <laughs> yes, yet, hopefully. Um, but one thing, uh, biology has always been a great interest to me. Chemistry has always been a great interest to me. So kind of talking a little bit about it, at least as far as I can kind of explain. So the HIV virus, again, spreads primarily through sexual contact, but also through maybe other methods such as breastfeeding or sharing needles, you know, things of that nature. And so when the HIV virus actually enters the bloodstream, it enters maybe target cells, especially primarily T cells and uh, B cells, which are a part of your immune system. And so your immune system is obviously you is obviously utilized by the body to fight off infections and to, you know, kill infections when need when need be. 
with HIV, it's a little bit different because when it enters a host cell, as most viruses do, they typically enter cells through um, this thing called a protein receptor on the cell. Once it has that protein receptor, it's allowed to actually enter the cell through this process, I believe it's known as um, phagocytosis. If I'm praying, I'm not mistaking that on my biology exam later this May. But um, <laughs> so when that enters the actual cell, um, it starts to enter into this nuclear envelope. Um, and so this envelope is a bunch of different proteins and uh, lipids, also known as fats, phospholipids primarily, um, that kind of gather around the genetic information of um, this HIV virus. And it allows the, um, the viral genetic information to enter the nucleus. So uh, the nucleus is obviously kind of like, I always call it like the brain of the cell. It kind of does all the, it kind of it houses the DNA, it allows transcription to occur, things like that, and allows proteins to be made. And so as it enters the nucleus, it's able to target some of the DNA in these white blood cells, and it's able to kind of um, kill off some of these viruses and also make more of itself inside the body. And so it's able to do this through uh, DNA replication, uh, especially as these um, DNA strands kind of, they have more access to more DNA from the actual nucleus. It's able to get, it's able to unload itself. It's able to reload itself, able to make more viruses. It's a whole thing, it's a lot. So it's able to take some of the RNA that it's actually coded. So able to go from DNA to RNA through this thing called uh, transcription. Um, and some of that RNA gets translated into, um, it translates through these things called ribosomes in the cell, which I've always found super interesting. They do protein synthesis, so they make amino acids that eventually build proteins. And these proteins can build up new, uh, along with phospholipids from the actual white blood cell and from phospholipids throughout the uh, HIV, original HIV virus, it's able to make new viruses in the bloodstream. And these viruses, well, all these viruses are HIV viruses, but each specific HIV virus is now able to target its own white blood cell um, and kind of attack that, kill that, et cetera. Now, typically this isn't a major issue for, you know, for too long, like if, if it happens for too long, yes, it's going to become an issue. But the thing about our body is we obviously produce so many white blood cells because in order to fight off infections that it can take such a long time as, um, as Sarah was saying, it could take about 11 years for some infections to occur. For some, it could be as, uh, it can be about eight years. It really depends. Um, but for the body to kind of, uh, but, but the science behind it, the virus has to basically kill a bunch of white blood cells. And these white blood cells, we have so many in the body that we may not notice that this is going on without any kind of genetic testing or without any kind of blood testing specifically. Um, and so as, as time goes on, we're able to actually, um, the HIV virus is able to proliferate. We start to lose blood, we start to lose white blood cells. This is bad by all means. You know, after uh, after you know a few years go by, after several years go by, because if we don't have enough white blood cells, any number of infections, uh, like we said with Kaposi sarcoma, things like that, um, are able to actually uh, enter the body and are not able to be fought, fought off by our blood cells. Um, and so that leads to what we call opportunistic infections. It actually it, many infections that most people that are not living with HIV and AIDS or uh, some kind of immunodeficiency syndrome, we can fight off very easily, or we may not ever even experience, but people with HIV can, or people specifically with AIDS, because in order for, in, in, that's kind of the, the thing, the HIV, okay. So you have HIV, as time goes on, um, it can be a catalyst for what we call acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, as Amaya was saying earlier. Um, and so with AIDS, with acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, opportunistic infections can occur. Um, and like we said, with Kaposi sarcoma. So you can allow certain infections to spread throughout the body. Um, and it's very hard to fight off because most people can fight them off perfectly because they have the white blood cells to do it. They, they have the biological systems in place. They have enzymes, they have proteins, et cetera, in place to actually fight this off. 
But if you're living with HIV and you've had many of your blood cells killed off, your white blood cells killed off, it's going to be difficult to do that. Um, so that big ramble uh, was kind of <laughs> at least what I can, what, what I know about it. Um, and so with that, it makes HIV kind of like, I don't want to say maybe a silent killer, because again, it takes so long for this to occur that we can easily have blood testing now and things like that. But um, it can very easily lead to infections as within subsequent years um, that can be dangerous to the body that the body just simply cannot fight off because it does not have the cells to do so. Um, so yeah, that's in terms of treatment, um, there are a few treatments available. The primary treatments that we usually associate with HIV medication, we usually refer to that as antiretroviral therapies or ARTs. Um, so some ARTs include nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors. Um, so I'm getting this from medlineplus.gov, so thank you to them. Um, so th those are called NRTIs. They basically block an enzyme called reverse transcriptase um, that, that, again, helps the HIV virus actually enter the cell and allows it to um, transcript itself and make proteins, make new viruses, et cetera. Then you have NNRTIs, which are just non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors. They actually bind to and later change reverse transcriptase. So it kind of changes the enzyme. And once the enzyme changes, it's very hard for it to actually go back to where it was. So it's very hard for the virus to actually do anything in the cell or in the nucleus primarily. Um, then you have integrase inhibitors. It blocks an enzyme called integrase that also works um, on proteins or, or on protein synthesis. And then you have protease inhibitors, which blocks an enzyme called protease, which uh, is kind of a protein builder. Um, so you have other things too, but especially like we said earlier with um, Retrovir or Viriad, medications like that can definitely help fight off infections and use those kind of uh, chemical uh, systems like the NNRTIs or the NRTIs uh, to actually fight off the, these infections um, and kind of delay them further, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Um... It, it does make sense. And again, yeah, thanks for going through that so thoroughly. And to my understanding, which I thought is super cool, right, um, for people who are taking antiretroviral medications, um, the presence of HIV in the system can be so low that it becomes undetectable on a test, which means it's virtually untransmittable, um, you know, as long as they continue to take their medications and, um, you know, putting other safer sex methods into place for either themselves or uh, their partner. And I think that is huge, um, so significant to health and, um, you know, stopping the spread of this virus. I'm glad you brought that up, Sarah, because that's part of the, the U equals U campaign that's been um, going and trying to like get more steam and more like eyes on it over the last like few years, talking about like undetectable equals untransmittable. Um, and that's a really good way to educate people and bring up the fact that, yes, even though HIV is not curable, it is very much treatable. And we have treatments that are making sure that people are living healthy, normal, long uh, lives, um, fulfilling lives. Um, so it's, it's important for people to remember. I think people don't think about that or forget about that, but that is an important part of things in this education. For sure. Um, and finally, Tyler, what can you tell us about resources that our audiences can utilize, you know, if they have any concerns about HIV status, any concerns about treatment, um, or otherwise? We'll start there. Yeah, so personally, um, I think the first thing to do is if you have a healthcare provider, talk to your healthcare provider, always ask questions to them. Um, obviously, they know more than, um, than maybe we do, or maybe, you know, many people do, because they also not only understand maybe the sexual health aspect of it, but also the science, and they know the treatments, they know them like the back of their hand, most of the time, ask your health care provider, and if you need access to equitable health care providers, that may be another, um, another step to take as well. But another big thing is to obviously, uh, to obviously utilize local resources. So especially if you live in the Albany area, or if you live in the capital region, um, we here are all from the Albany area. We work at Upper Hudson Planned Parenthood. 
Um, you know, you can call you can call folks like us anytime. I believe we have HIV and we have HIV testing um, at at our center, right? That yes. Okay. Correct. So, yep. so yeah, you can access that. Um, so if you need, uh, you know, next steps, like, okay, so I have this HIV, I have this, I need to get HIV testing. Where do I go from here? A Planned Parenthood near you may be a great place to try. Again, if you live in the Albany area, Upper Hudson Planned Parenthood may be great. Places like the Damien Center or, um, uh, what is the other place? It's um, Alliance for Positive Health, excuse me. That's another really great place to look for in the Albany area. Um, again, if you're interested in more so like national things, like you want to come help people, you, you want to come like fundraise, mutual aid organizations, like especially on social media, maybe a good spot, uh, maybe a good thing to look towards. But also even like the World AIDS Day campaign, if you go on world's, worldaidsday.org, um, you can look at like their Rock the Ribbon campaign um, uh, that's going to go on on December 1st. And that may help with fundraising, things like that. Um, you can host fundraisers. Uh, you can wear red, especially on December 1st, to kind of show support. That's another thing they talk about. Um, just making sure you're getting out there and supporting people living with HIV and AIDS. That may be something you might be interested in. Um, other things, obviously, if you're looking for resources, especially if you're living with HIV, look towards maybe family members or friends that are supportive and are also affirming of your identity, affirming of who you are, and affirming of um, the maybe struggles that you are undergoing. So um, positivepeers.org, they kind of talk about this a little bit. Um, the, uh, positive, positive Peers, they also work with a lot of HIV and AIDS advocacy. Um, so they talk about you know being able to actually educate yourself and being able and if you're if you're like maybe a family member someone living with HIV educate yourself before you go and ask someone to educate you right um, that's kind of the first step if you have questions you know making sure you see that out um, but also making sure you're listening to folks with HIV and AIDS and you know asking questions if they if they're comfortable with that and if they are letting you know something or if they are um, saying like hey. I have um, um, I, I have been diagnosed. You know what can I do? Can I can I confide in you? Making sure you're doing that, and if you are someone living with HIV, making sure you have some kind of support system like that set up, maybe with friends, family, peers, etc. Maybe even just your healthcare provider or a therapist. You know, someone that can uh, take steps with you and can listen to you before all else. Um, making sure you're encouraging treatment, especially because HIV, again, is very, very, very treatable, you know, like the U, the U equals U campaign. That's another place to look towards. Um, pre preventionaccess.org does a lot of work with that if you want to kind of look towards them. Um, so that may be something to look towards. Just making sure you have a support system in place and making sure that if you're not someone living with HIV or AIDS, but you want to support someone, making sure you are that support system if you're able to do so. Um, and you make sure that, hey, I'm, you know, I'm not going to, like, if you want me to keep, if you want me to keep a secret about your diagnosis, you, you don't tell anyone, right? Like, you don't go around and, you know, spreading rumor, you know, things like that. Just making sure you are an anchor of support, as uh, they say. Um, making sure you're there for people, making sure they're there for you with me be. Um, I think the uh, U equals U campaign is a really great place to start. Again, you can access that through preventionaccess.org. Um, again, your healthcare provider, Upper Hudson Planned Parenthood, um, Albany Alliance for Positive Health, the Damien Center, you know, especially if you're living with H HIV and AIDS and you're LGBTQ, looking for organizations like that, uh, that um, are able to help you deal with that. I think that's a great place to start, really. Yeah, thanks, Tyler. I definitely have to agree. Support is, it really makes all the difference, right? And so if you you have people close by that you can trust, but um, even not, I feel like there are a lot of uh, groups that you can find through social media as well. And um, just to add on to the local organizations, In Our Own Voices um, does a really nice job of offering HIV support groups and education to people um, living with HIV, especially um, 
people of color as well. So plenty of plenty of resources in the area. I'll plug Upper Hudson again because we do provide HIV testing. We, we can also prescribe scripts for PrEP. Um, we don't do long-term treatment of HIV, but we certainly reach out to um, Albany Medical Center in particular, who can definitely hook people up um, that way. And Tyler, um, just to, just just in case you haven't mentioned before, what are some things that some people listening can do to get involved in World AIDS Day and find out how they can um, get more information about it and get involved in it? Yeah, thank you. So um, worldaidsday.org, they, um, they have um, a couple different things that they're especially doing on December 1st, but really any time of the year. So they're doing um, an event known as Rock the Ribbon on uh, December 1st, which is like this virtual event uh, discussing HIV AIDS, um, getting to meet new people, yeah, uh, making sure you have like a red ribbon so like you can wear that to school or you can wear that to work to show that you're supporting folks. Um, you can text red ribbon to uh, 70085 uh, and can help fundraise money for HIV AIDS testing um, primarily in the UK, but there's also uh, events in the US as well. Um, also through their website, they have fundraising opportunities. So if you're ever interested maybe in the near future, um, in fundraising for um, World AIDS Day, you can always fundraise through your school, through your university, your workplace, etc. And they have information available for that on their website. Um, you can honestly, it can be something as simple as you want to get involved with that specific organization, which again, I think is a really great thing to do. You could, it can also be something as simple as um, maybe uh, educating yourself um, through websites and making sure you're, uh, especially for folks that may be taking like health classes or sex education classes, especially in high school, making sure you're asking questions and making sure you're, um, if need be, if you have maybe a health teacher or you have like a sexual education teacher that is, that maybe does not have the updated information that they need, maybe you say, hey, here's some resources to look for, uh, like the CDC or HIV.gov, things like that. Um, I think that's even a great thing to do throughout the year, but especially on World AIDS Day, making sure that um, they're advocating for folks um, to making sure to make sure they're re they're uh, receiving the equitable care they deserve. Um, so yeah, I think again, if you ever want to uh, look into it, WorldAidsDay.org, it's a great website. I think it will have plenty of resources for folks interested in advocacy. Okay, and you did the dang thing. So thank you again for being on here with us. Um, I think we did the thing, y'all. I think that is it. So we can wrap up. Um, Tyler, any last minute um, pearls of wisdom that you want to leave us with before we get going? Um, I just say making sure you're talking to folks, making sure you're in community with folks so you know can be supportive, um, making sure you have equitable access to healthcare, thing, all those things, uh, really just making sure you're supporting folks living with HIV, whether that's the uh, uh, mutual aid or something else. I don't know. That's really just my big thing. I think it's... Um, I think we've obviously come a long way since the 80s in terms of understanding, in terms of access, but we all obviously still have some ways to go. And I think that's what um, people are doing a lot of great work to making sure we understand that um, in all aspects from medicine to culture to um, yeah, things of that nature. So I, I really do appreciate y'all being able to, uh, being willing to have me speak with y'all. I really do. I really do like it. I really do love it. Thank you. What? We are the ones who have been blessed. Thank you for coming on here with us, spending this time with us, educating us. You have truly dropped the education gauntlet. Respect. Thank you. Um, we can always respect a good education session. Um, and I would just want to agree with you in saying that it's so important for people to be getting educated. It's so important for people to know and understand, number one, um, how HIV is even transmitted, how it can be prevented, how if you're living with HIV, how you can be healthy, um, and how to make sure that you're not continuing to stigmatize someone having HIV. So yes, Sarah, any last tidbits to add? 
Uh, other than echoing what has already been said, no. Yeah, this has been a true pleasure continuing to um, do the work, the Lord's work of spreading uh, not misinformation, but information and helpful tidbits um, about HIV. So yeah, uh, echoing that. Thank you so much, Tyler. Um, yeah, and helping to make this happen. Yes. So there we have it, everybody. Tyler, coming for our jobs, okay? Coming for, <laughs> coming for these doctors' jobs. You know what I'm saying? And so we will see Tyler in the future as a doctor educator extraordinaire. So thank you for listening. Please go out there and do your research and get educated. Make sure that you're supporting people who are living with HIV and make sure you participate in World AIDS Day. Thanks for listening and see y'all next time. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on Spilling the Tea with UHPP, where TEA stands for Truth, Education, and Advice Surrounding Sexual Health. Keep your cups and koozies on deck for the next one. Toodaloo!